1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Do you have any family members or friends who've had COVID lately? It's early in the fall season, but experts say we're into a new wave. For those who are up to date with their vaccines but end up getting COVID, they're generally not seriously ill but certainly feel sick and maybe are surprised that they got it. Dr. Susie Hoda is Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at Toronto's University Health Network. She joined Libby on Tuesday to talk about the state of COVID more than two and a half years after the pandemic began.
2: The truth of the matter is COVID has continued to circulate through the summer. And so, you know, from my perspective, there's actually continued to be a really high amount of COVID in our communities um, through much of the country. And we just haven't been able to see it so well, because we're not reporting those numbers, we're not testing everybody. So it's actually a bit deceiving, maybe, to the public, um, where it's easy to think, it's gone, it's not that big a deal, it's a summertime and things have subsided. But the truth is, it continues to circulate.
3: It almost feels sometimes that the numbers are being deliberately hidden. The government doesn't want us to think about these things. And therefore, uh, you know, you you, you can't think about what you can't measure. And you can't really
2: measure it the way things are now. Well, I think part of the, the issue is, you know, I agree that we shouldn't let you know, the numbers of cases of COVID-19 just dominate our world all the time. We can't just be singularly focused on that number of cases. But at the same time, we need to recognize what the trends are and and not believe the opposites occurred, that, you know, that things have disappeared when they're continuing to be around. So, I mean, we do know that the vaccines really help to prevent severe infection. It's what's protecting us from getting really sick from COVID-19. However, there are two things to keep in mind with the vaccines. They are not necessarily going to prevent infections from happening altogether. And the other thing is that the effects of those vaccines will wane over time. Like many vaccines, that's not a new concept. Um, and also, even if you've had a COVID-19 infection, the protection or immunity you get from that may also wane over time. Details on what that timeline looks like, depending on what vaccine you get, what type of variants are circulating gets ever too complex to get into the details. But, you know, the recommendations right now um, are to get boosted if you haven't had a dose of the vaccine within three to six months, um, depending on, you know, what the situation is and when you can access them.
3: Well, three to six months, that's pretty wide uh,
2: range. It is. I mean, it, it, you know, I think that, um, We have to recognize that these things are are always evolving. And we do also have to make this something that's manageable for people. So I guess the the bottom line is try to keep yourself as up to date on being immune as possible. We feel like we've been in this pandemic for a very long time. We have been. (laughs) Yes, we have. But in the grand scheme of things, when you're talking about a new pathogen on the forefront, this is... You know, milliseconds for the organism. So, I think we we just have to recognize that things will continue to change and the organisms evolving. So, we we do have to you know be uh, willing to adjust how we we behave and what we do.
3: How are you getting your information? Is it mostly wastewater or what?
2: The wastewater data is very helpful. It shows trends, and I think the trends are the most important things we can look at right now. Um, the other thing is looking at hospitalizations and. Intensive care admissions, which thankfully have been fairly low, but hospitalizations have been steady. Um, we have not seen things come down the way that we would have liked to see in terms of patients with uh, COVID nineteen who end up in hospital. So those are useful indicators. Um, looking also in the background at what's happening with other variants and subvariants that have, you know, gotten interest because they are circulating and starting to increase in proportion in other parts of the world is useful for surveillance because that could be, you know, the early warning that there might be something that gets, uh, you know, into our population and could drive an increase in transmission again. The biggest message is that COVID-19 is not gone, as we started off saying, but also there are other respiratory viruses and be aware of that. And, um, you know, we just have to make decisions based on, what are our own personal risks are um, to try and, you know, be as, as least affected and disrupted by all this. It will carry on for some time. Um, but this fall, yes, be aware of what's circulating around you.
1: Infectious Diseases Specialist, Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at Toronto's University Health Network. This is Uma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. There have been more damning revelations about Hockey Canada's use of fees from parents as a slush fund for sex assault claims. As the Minister of Sport so aptly put it, Hockey Canada seems to see this criminal behavior as an insurance problem. Amid frustration and repeated calls by MPs for a change in leadership, Hockey Canada's interim chair, Andrea Skinner, continued to stand by CEO and President Scott Smith before Parliament on Tuesday. Not long before those comments were made, Fight Back's recovering politicians panel discussed the devolving situation when they joined Libby on Tuesday. Charles Sousa is a former Ontario Liberal finance minister. Howard Hampton, a former Ontario NDP leader, and Lisa Rait, a former deputy leader of the federal Conservatives.
4: It's such a mess, Libby. I mean, it's it's a mess from all circumstances if you are a victim uh in in these cases and you're not getting the appropriate i guess hearing from police and the charges are not proceeding and there's no complaint then you turn to hockey canada and say well i have a complaint against you and hockey canada um decides that they're going to make compensation with the with the victim i'm okay with the victim getting compensation by the way i think that is appropriate I think it's appropriate Hockey Canada pays it, um, but I also think it's appropriate that Hockey Canada discloses this and doesn't hide it from a long time ago. And the fact that they recognize that they do have a problem um, and that they have to fix it. And they haven't done any of that. I'm not worried about the, the fund. I'm not worried about the money being there for victims. I think it's if you're not getting the justice that you deserve through the legal system, then you have to get some justice along the way. And presumably what should happen is that these payouts should make Hockey Canada realize, shoot, we've got a real problem here. We better fix it, or at least we better disclose it. And they did neither of those. So yeah, they're guilty when it comes to how they've handled it. I don't think the guilt, though, is about the fact that they wanted to compensate the victim.
3: And so, Howard, where should this money come from?
5: Well, I, look, I, I I don't think where this money should come from is, is a central issue here. The, the fact of the matter is uh, this has been going on uh, from one end of Canada to the other for decade after decade after decade. And I think what Hockey Canada has been doing is they've been buying silence. Yes.
6: Yeah. That's
5: yeah. what they've been doing. They've been buying silence. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the real tragedy here is that when this happens in small-town Alberta, and it happens in small-town Saskatchewan, and it happens in small-town Nova Scotia, Hockey Canada has to be proactive, and they needed to be proactive probably 30 years ago. Uh,
3: Charles, I I just want to get the last word on this from you. Um, You know, uh, Lisa and Howard were saying the, the, the main issue is not where the money comes from, but I've talked to a number of hockey parents, and they disagree on that.
5: Well, the membership is demanding change. Given the revelations that have now come out, and this has been going on, as noted by Howard, for decades. In 1989, I think there was. they paid since then about $7.6 million in nine settlements. And the issue comes around transparency. The uh, issue comes around about setting the stage and the leadership, and they've tolerated it. And so I guess maybe some of the members have tolerated it. There has been so lack of transparency. And I would say that the revelations isn't just about sexual abuse. There's also financial abuse. I think they need a governance audit and a financial audit. They need to understand where the gifts are coming from, all the other things and the, the, the benefits that some of these individuals are receiving that are not disclosed. They should be disclosed. And people who have their money in, invested in their children and in their kids and in this organization, they deserve and should demand a change in leadership and no longer tolerate it. similarly to what's happening in our, in our defense in, 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 with our military. Uh, You know, what was seemed to say, okay, we'll just keep it hidden and, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, it isn't the way it is and it shouldn't be be accepted. And um, I suspect now with the public hearings that are going to be taken on, there'll be a lot of changes being made at Hockey Canada.
4: This file really has troubled me from the beginning because at every step of the way where they could have come clean and done better, they haven't taken the opportunity to do so. Even having this information dribble out little by little by little... So if the board isn't doing the job, the board has to look inwardly and determine whether or not they're really, you know, is this the best group of people to move forward? Because the system has a black eye. And you know who carries that black eye? The boys and girls who play hockey. And that's not the way it should be. I mean, if they're if they're part of the problem, get out of the way, bring in new management, bring in a new board, and and clean the place up.
1: Lisa Raitt, former deputy leader of the Federal Conservative Party, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader, Fight Back's Recovering Politicians panel. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Uma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, help with this question. Is now a good time to cash
0: out your investments? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Komsik on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Ontario could soon have an energy crisis, not during this year or next, but in four years from now. We've learned from an RBC report that we here in Ontario could experience an electricity crunch by 2026 and the shortages could be significant by 2030. At the same time, Energy Minister Todd Smith has announced, with few details, a program that could see volunteer households receive financial incentives for reducing their use of AC on hot summer days. While filling in for Libby, Jane was joined by a panel of experts to discuss the issues and possible solutions. Mike Schreiner is Ontario's Green Party leader. Paul Acchione is a senior management consultant with nearly 50 years of experience in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry. And Jontine Nathwani is a professor at the University of Waterloo and founding executive director of the Waterloo Institute for Sustainable Energy.
7: This development uh, that uh, the minister, of course, has now taken action to try and address, which is uh, an emerging crunch identified by the power system operator, the independent uh, IESO, and we're seeing a constraint emerging around the uh, 25-26 timeframe, and the government's response here is to at least extend the current license of the Pickering Nuclear Station. But beyond that, as we look ahead in terms of the energy demand for the province, uh, we are beginning to see uh, constraints develop, and one answer to that is to address, uh, refurbish, or essentially rebuild the uh, the, the nuclear units. Uh, and uh, I believe uh, that those two steps uh, go go a substantial way uh, towards addressing the needs that emerge, both from electrification of transport, but also. A large increase in um, industrial demand, uh, new manufacturing capacity in Ontario and a whole host of other factors. So if you look ahead we will need more electricity and we need to plan for it now and part of the suggestion or uh, a decision made by the government is to look closely again at how we might refurbish these plants at Pickering and uh, in my view I think it's a prudent and positive uh, decision.
8: Oh okay, that is positive. Uh, Paul acchioni what are your thoughts on this report about a pending electricity crisis and what needs to be done to prevent it from happening?
9: The system operator has already indicated that they plan to renew those contracts when they, they expire as long as they bid reasonable prices. And, and if you look at the, uh, the shortage, over the next 10, 10 uh, to 12 years, it's only about three or 4,000 megawatts. So three or 4,000 megawatts could be added fairly easily. And that was the original plan by the system operator to put in some additional gas plants to tidy them over during that 10 year period before some of the newer technologies, um, renewables with cheaper storage or or, uh, small modular reactors, become commercially available in the 2030 period. So they were looking for about an eight to ten year period when they could lean on gas, but recently there's been a lot of public uh, resentment over the use of more gas, and the government has asked the IESO to look at a different approach and uh, so now they've got to deal with this gap for the next eight years of about uh, four thousand, three four thousand megawatts, uh, because uh, they're not they're not being allowed to go ahead and and uh, contract for more gas. So per- personally, I, I I don't see a short term problem in using more gas as long as we have a long term strategy to phase it out eventually. So um, you know we we there's no point shooting yourself in the foot. Um, uh, because we have a short-term problem. I think I think you have to be a little bit realistic with energy policy. Otherwise, you end up with the silly situation they have in Europe right now.
8: Uh, Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, what is your take on the report, uh, the findings, and uh, what you see as the solution?
10: Well, Gene, first of all, I just want to say that uh, some of this is brought on by the Ford government's own policies. Uh, when they were first elected in 2018, they canceled 758 renewable energy projects and they canceled uh, most of the province's uh, energy efficiency programs. And we know that the lowest cost solution to our energy needs is to use it more efficiently, helping homeowners and businesses save money by saving energy. Uh, at a time when we're in a climate emergency, at a time when the input costs for gas are very volatile due to what's happening in, in primarily in Ukraine, um, I think we'd be much smarter to... Um, Ramp up uh, renewables. Uh, The price of renewable energy has dropped so dramatically in the last decade that it is a lower cost source of generation now than than gas is, and even a lower cost than, than nuclear.
1: Mike Schreiner's Ontario's Green Party leader. Paul Acchione is a senior management consultant with almost 50 years of experience in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry. And Jatin Athwani is a professor at the University of Waterloo and founding executive director of the Waterloo Institute for Sustainable Energy. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Kopsik for Jane Brown. Amid market volatility that's been going on for months now, a new survey indicates that about a quarter of Canadians are losing confidence in the stock markets and are now looking to cash out their investments. The frustration is understandable, but is this a good idea? Joining Jane to offer expert opinion, Darren Farwell, Senior Wealth Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Scotia Wealth Management, and Romana King, Canada senior finance editor with personal finance comparison website Finder, which conducted the study.
4: Well,
6: we wanted to try and get a better understanding of how Canadians felt, sort of with restrictions on the pandemic easing, um, the economy stalling a little bit because of interest rates and, and high rates of inflation, and of course we know that when there's market uncertainty, we know that you know emotions can creep back in, and sure enough, we found in the Finder survey that. People did have a lot of market uncertainty and, and, and a lot less confidence than, than um, in prior years, with the, particularly with the stock market, in particular. Uh, baby boomers had the least amount of confidence that the stock market would you know meet or exceed their investment returns in 2022.
8: Romana, so when we look at uh, the people who are saying they want to cash out their investments, uh, what is their income situation like, and is there a generational divide? So do boomers feel differently than millennials and even younger people?
6: Yes, I mean we definitely saw a generational divide, and I think that's that's not a, a something that's surprising. The younger generation is far more confident. I believe forty percent thought that the uh, stock market would meet or exceed their expectations this year, compared to thirteen percent of baby boomers. So there's a big variance there, and a lot of times we look at the income, and and you know people say, you know, if if someone's only making fourteen thousand, how much could they have per year? How much could they have in the stock market? Well. Quite honestly, a lot of those people are, are already retired. They're the ones that aren't earning. They're right. relying on their investments to have an income, uh, along with government uh, programs, wow. to actually you know pay for their living expenses. And so those are the individuals that are thinking, hey, I need to reconsider how I've got my money invested in the market. I need to shore up any losses that I might have. And and part of the difficulty with that is when you have one in four you know, investors and Canadians saying, you know, I'm going to cash out on the market this year because I'm worried about where the market is going. We want to sort of ask them, hey, if you're going to do that, if you're going to take that that uh, step, have you actually looked and, and considered what that would mean by crystallizing those losses? And is that the best, you know, action to take in a bear market?
8: Darren, I'll go over to you now. Is it a good idea for anyone of uh, in certain situations to think about cashing out investments?
11: Well, look, all situations are different, so we need to be thinking about what a person's specific circumstances are. But it, there's a lot of reasons why, and for for, for best outcomes, it, it may not make sense to sell when things are down. I mean, the number one mistake in investing is, in fact, selling good quality stuff at a bad time. But, but Romana made a very good point, and there's a difference between understanding that point that's very... You know, it's a technical point, and but there's the emotional side, and the emotional side is what gets overwhelming. So what you what's good to have in a circumstance like that is another person to speak with about it, mm-hmm. because then you can talk about some of the other issues that aren't so emotional. You know, if you bought something at sixty dollars and it's a hundred dollars and you want to sell it now, that's a forty dollar gain. And that means, you know, you're going to pay something like $10 in tax. So the stock has to go down that much before you're even even. And then you have to make the decision about when to get back in. So my answer to your question is, is as opposed to sort of selling at a bad time, it's more important to have your planning in place so you never need to do that and have someone to sort of talk to uh, and, and talk you out of making that number one investment mistake. Very often what I suggest is a time to do those extra things or things that were above what was in the plan is really when markets are good because then you can take a little money out of the portfolio without having the same kind of impact as selling good quality stuff when the prices are low. So an adjustment to the lifestyle is more about you should already have planned for the regular lifestyle expense and markets going up and down shouldn't impact that. Those extra expenses that were maybe unexpected, perhaps if you can defer those until the market's recovered and looking a little bit better, would be a good idea.
1: Darren Farwell, Senior Wealth Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Scotia Wealth Management, and Romana King, Canada Senior Finance Editor with Personal Finance Comparison Website Finder. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fightback. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Komsic. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has
1: the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. As families gather for Thanksgiving, Midge and Scarborough shared a personal motto
2: attitude of
6: gratitude actually changed my life, and I don't mean to sound preachy, but I found it by simply uh, appreciating really basic things. It started prior to the pandemic when I my leg was saved, but it continued, and even during the pandemic, I know that it was a rough time, but when I acknowledged people for what they did and, and said genuine thank yous when they were there, I saw so much good, and I continue to see good. The gratitude and genuine appreciation that you give to someone during the day, I find it's almost like they're in shock that they're getting it and that they had an impact on you. I see it 9.5 times out of 10, and it's very genuine. Attitude of gratitude has changed my life. It has lifted it up.
9: Everything is brighter.
1: Angela Notovico also has Gratitude Goals.
9: I wanted to uh, share how I use my gratitude list every day. Um, every morning, I go through my intentions, which I've set for the year. I have three yearly intentions. So I go over those, and then I have a biweekly intention that I set every two weeks, and I go over that. And then I have a gratitude list, and it has about 50 items on it. And I go through each item, same I'm grateful for, and then I repeat the item that's on the list. And I do add items to my gratitude list periodically. And I find that this has been really helpful to me, having that gratitude list and reviewing it every day,
0: keeping it in my mind. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Carol who called from Guelph about her recent experience with COVID, as experts say we're in yet another wave.
6: I do mask whenever I go out in public, um, and because I still know that COVID is definitely around. I was at a convention the end of August, and the first week of September, I tested
3: positive. Hmm. And how many shots have you had, if I may ask? I've had four. How was your bout? Uh, the first few days, actually, when I was still testing negative, was
6: when I was most sick.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: When I started feeling better then I start that, that was
3: when I started testing positive and I was positive for eight days. Wow, that's a long one That was a long one.
1: That does it for this week's best to fight back on Zoomer radio. if you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us from noon to one weekdays or if you have a comment email us at fightback at zoomer.ca follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our fight back voicemail anytime. 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Komsic for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the
0: best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer.